Hello, and welcome to the Moms Everyday podcast. I'm Nikki Bates, and in addition to our podcast, Moms Everyday is a TV show made by moms for moms. You can check us out at momseveryday.com, where we offer lots of parenting advice, ways to make mom's life easier, recipes, and lots of other helpful parenting information. Today on the podcast, what would you do if you had to remake yourself after your husband became your wife? Educator and author Kristen Collier answers that question in her book, Home Remaking in a Transgender Marriage. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. So Kristen, first off, can you just tell us a little bit about your family? Sure. So I currently live with my parenting partner, who's a Sita, and she was my husband, but she's not the man I married um, some years ago, over 20 years ago, and our two children. And then my romantic partner lives with me and our kids on one part of the house, and my parenting partner has her own way. So tell us a little bit about that transition. How did your husband become your wife or your parenting partner? Well, about 13 years ago, my husband told me that he wanted to wear women. And I probably should have seen it coming, but I didn't. And it was really a shock for me, even though I really considered myself quite liberal. It was a surprise to have that happen to somebody who was so close to me that really defined who I was in the world and who our family was. So he went through about three years of therapy and I had no context for understanding what that meant. There was nobody in my community that that happened to, nobody in my family, nobody even knew about it. Nobody even knew anybody. So times were pretty different than they are now um, for some. <laughs> and then about 10 years ago, he had come to the conclusion that he definitely needed to live the rest of his life as a woman because otherwise, and it's not going to, not going to have any life at all. And wanted to be able to give our kids something much more than that as a parent. And so transitioned to a woman, which happened socially at first and then over time medically as well. And my kids really accepted it. Our kids really accepted it very quickly at the ages of three and five. So it, it was um, relatively smooth. But then uh, over the course of the next year after he transitioned into my parenting partner. We romantically split in that time and I realized that I was heterosexual. <laughs> and it was um, a moment of deciding, do we split ways and have different houses or do we find some way to make this work? And we never really committed to, okay, we're gonna stay together no matter what. It was more of, we wanted to honor each other's truths every day. and she understood that I had married somebody in a heterosexual relationship and she did not want to get in the way of that truth for me. But we both knew that we had married our best friend and we didn't want to necessarily let go of that. And I had been, I'd been married at 18. So all of our finances and everything had been in one pot since then. And over the course of our marriage, we'd had one fight over where the Midwest was. So we had a pretty exceptional accounts. <laughs> it was not something I wanted to let go of easily. So we kind of made, a deal with ourselves that we wouldn't let go until it made sense to until there was something that was definitely better and we certainly haven't found that yet in fact better has been reconstrued to be something that expanded and included more than just the people in our household so since this is a parenting show i have some parenting questions and you mentioned that when Sana decided to make the transition um, that they were three and five, correct? And that they adapted pretty easily. Um, but I know that this has kind of been an ongoing journey, like you talked about. Um, you know, there's 
been dating along the way. There, now you're um, living with someone else too. Could, so can you talk about how you have helped your sons to navigate this throughout, um, you know, from the very early stages when they were young to, to now? Absolutely. I think a big piece of our success in working with this was that I started studying compassionate communication at the same time that Seda transitioned. And so when I got that news, I had someone to go to. I was actually enrolled in a program to teach, to learn how to teach um, this modality, which is also called nonviolent communication to other parents. So I wanted to have a focus on parenting because I could see how much we need it, right? We have like this living laboratory. We have multiple opportunities to use it within the hour. And so I thought that I was doing it for my parenting. I had no idea that I would be doing it to explore who I was and how I felt about my husband transitioning from male to female, but that's what happened. And so I got to know those tools really well. And um, as I came to peace with what she had to say in her personal truth, I was able to then share it from that place. So Seda and I both spoke with each other, practicing nonviolent communication or compassionate communication. And um, it took three years. I mean, it really took a long time to come to that. And that's what the book, you know, it's not a short story, right? It's a, it's a whole length memoir. <laughs> because I really wanted to, to demonstrate that it doesn't happen overnight. And it's not like somebody's just nice. And so they are able to make this happen or, you know, just open-minded. I was kind of open-minded, but there were a lot of things I was close-minded to. And I didn't understand so much. And so when... Um, when we went through that process, which really took years of tears and struggle, we did that together between the two of us and we didn't really share that with the kids. It's not that I wasn't pushing a stroller and crying, you know, but the kids were out in front of me, you know, or, or hiding where I could in the garden while they played in the sandbox, you know, and having a moment. But when we actually brought it to our kids, we really felt truly supportive and peaceful with what was happening, as peaceful as we could knowing that all bets were off, you know, in a way, but assuring them that they were loved and that wouldn't change and we were there for them. And, you know, they had no reason to think otherwise. So they took the tone of, oh, this is okay. And I had also had an opportunity to be on, this was the old days, right? Yahoo groups <laughs> for trans family um, partners. And some of them had families. And so I'd somewhat normalized this process of transitioning across gender lines and that was what I needed to, you know, say to the kids. So what, in one part of the book, there's um, a chapter where we go to buy breast um, enhancers for our newly developing female. And the kids came with me because I was a stay-at-home mom. What was I going to do with them? We lived on one income, you know. And so in order to support my partner, they were kind of included in the process. And that was after she had come out to all of us. But it was a riot going shopping, you know, and they're feeling up the lingerie. And I'm like, oh, I'll try and find these jelly-like breast enhancers and poking at them. <laughs> came in and she said you know if, if these ones so she at first she wondered if they were for me you know right and I was like oh I can see her point but it wasn't the case but she um she went told me that I could return them if they were for a woman but sometimes they were purchased with other intentions and it, it made me clear you know right from the get-go that we weren't necessarily going to be accepted across the board you know and that kind of discrimination could be something my kids could witness and something that I could witness you know, my whole family so it, they were involved in the process across the way, but I think that our peace and certainty that we were doing what was healthy and right for each other and for our family really supported them and understanding that, yeah, it's all okay. And that's the attitude they've always had about it. They're teenagers now.
So now that you have gone through all of that, you are a compassionate communication coach yourself. And that's in addition to being the spouse of an out trans woman and a mother. So can you explain what is a compassionate communication coach? Well, I teach compassionate communication, um, often with a focus on, on parenting, but I also teach um, it to teachers as well. And I, I run a social groups program too. But basically what I'm doing is supporting people in learning how to give empathy to themselves and other people, really deep empathy, the kind where you're fully focused with a genuine curiosity about what's going on for the other person. So focused on the other person, not yourself, genuinely curious and not thinking, oh, well, this is the usual or, you know, they're doing this because of their childhood, blah, blah, blah. Um, really curious in this moment, what's going on? What feelings and needs are up for that other person or myself? And then finally with an intention only to connect, not an intention to heal, not an intention to get away, you know, and, and as from a parenting perspective, you know, not with the intention of that they will get in the car seat at the end of it, you know, you're not going to give empathy so that they'll finally quiet down and go for the drive. Um, so to teach people empathy, which is really the, the heart of nonviolent communication um, for themselves and for others, and then to teach them ways to express themselves, they're more likely to connect. And so, you know, for example, if I had said to my husband, um, what are you doing? You're so stupid. You're ruining our family. That would not be a conversation that he would have been able to come and join me. But if I said, when I hear you say that you want to be a woman, I feel utterly confused and lost and, and frustrated because I don't understand what's going on for you. Can you help me understand if you've been considering this for a while? You know, what's your process been like? I, I want to know that you really deeply considered this because this is a huge thing. That's a conversation that he could come to the table on. And from a parenting perspective, you know, those conversations happen all day. They happen about, you know, toothbrushing why that's important and going to bed, you know, so instead of it's because I said so, you know, actually having parents name their needs, you know, oh, gosh, you know, I'm really tired. And even if their kids are very tiny, it's amazing how emotional literacy can start very young. So I've been really transparent with my kids about that process as I am in the book about you know my process, because I want people to see that it's messy, but it comes out to a place of connectivity rather than a place where there's walls between and a separation of other and a hierarchy of needs. So yeah, my needs as a parent actually are really important because I kind of keep the ship afloat <laughs> and my kids know that now. And so they know when we're going for a trip, you know, it's either pack and, you know, put on a smile and try to make it work because that helps mom to actually do her job. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. True, and, and it's a way to explain it to them that doesn't have to do with, okay, I want you to be fake. You know, it's like, okay, just so you know, your energy makes a difference here. And, and the more positive energy that you can bring to this, the easier it is for all of us to be successful. And they're like, oh, you know what? You're right. And we've tried it always, as I'm sure most of us have. And, you know, we've all kind of come to the same conclusion, but it becomes more of a social experiment that we all look at rather than me deciding what's right and what's going to happen from a top down. Now, I know as a compassionate communication coach, you talk about bullying a lot. So um, I know you talk about that in your book a little bit. Do you want to, is there a passage that you want to read from the book about bullying? I would love to, actually. Yeah. People sometimes wonder whether the kids have been bullied because of our unique family structure. And the answer is no. That is in part because we live in a liberal part of Oregon, and they were enrolled in an alternative elementary school from the beginning. They have since attended mainstream public high 
middle and high schools and still have had no problems. I believe their safety and peace is largely due to the fact that no one in our family believes in bullies. We see every behavior as an attempt to meet need and we do our best to live in a paradise in the paradigm of abundance and love rather than scarcity and fear. Seda and I made every effort to expect the best of people during her transition and the children followed our lead and have encountered no anger, violence, or even teasing about the matter. On the other hand, both of our boys regularly come home from school concerned about the emphasis placed on the anti-bullying campaign and the numerous surveys that they are asked to fill out that leave them little or no room to report not having been bullied. They see these efforts by administration as fear-mongering, intended to prove that adults care and are making an effort to do something important, superhero style. Our kids think this campaign does more to pit youth against one another than to bring them together. When a child is tagged a bully, rarely does anyone feel moved to seek understanding for their behavior. Students and staff alike already see the bully as other, and it's hard for them to make amends for their actions. Instead, they are more likely to repeat maladaptive behaviors out of frustration, isolation, and chronically having their needs unmet. No one wants to be friends with a bully. And the, behaviors, and the behaviors considered to be bullying, according to the surveys, can include not wanting to play with someone or simply using the word lame. Can you imagine? We're bullies because we kind of sometimes choose our friends too. It's scary. By these standards, most kids are and have been bullied, so the miniature war on terror reigns. The cultural climate at school is one of anxiety, which my kids tend to poke fun at with their friends as teachers and administration attempt to search out and punish name-calling instead of placing their focus on compassionate communication and safety. Research has consistently shown that we must ask for the behavior that we want, rather than focusing on what we don't want. But the temptation to eradicate behavior by overpowering it is too great. The campaign looks dramatic and adults are more likely to feel important and powerful when they're policing people younger than themselves. The anti-bully campaign is both misguided and often misinformed. Recently, Trinidad noted at the bottom of one such climate survey that the multiple choice question asking students to identify their sexual orientation as heterosexual, straight, homosexual, gay, bisexual, or transgender was in fact poorly written. Transgender is not a sexual orientation, he informed them. He would know. I am proud that my kids have grown up feeling the empowerment of compassion and positive thinking. The opportunity to embrace this paradigm is one of the gifts that our situation has offered them. And another case in point, that it's not what life gives you, but how you use it that matters most. Well, first of all, how fortunate that they have never been targeted. Right. And I absolutely agree with you. In fact, um, our panelists did a chat not too long ago where we, uh, we were discussing the labels that are put on kids and what do you do once your kid is labeled as a bully was one of the things. How do they then fight that label? Yes. I was going to say, I work, um, I'm a behaviorist by, by trade also, so I work with kids on the autism spectrum. And mm -hmm. Kids either experience being bullied, and I put that in quotes because sometimes it's genuine violence and on and on, um, and sometimes it's not. But unfortunately, their mind categorizes it as being bullied, and they categorize themselves as being overpowered and helpless. 
and a lot of negative things just because somebody is, you know, not agreeing to come and play with them when all they want to play is a particular game, you know? So there's a lot of factors that go into these things. And if we instead treated it more holistically and worked towards communication and compassion and educating people on about diversity and pointing out in what situations we do need to include everyone because it's not all the time. But sometimes everyone needs to be included and we need to make sure that everyone is plugged in in a way that meets their needs, which doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has to play with every other person. We just need to make sure that everybody's needs are met as a group. So there are different ways of looking at it. But as a behaviorist, I, I work with kids all the time who are either tagged as a bully or tagged themselves or have been tagged as being in ways that are not completely appropriate and contribute to that. So you are in a unique position though, because um, you have up close and personal experience with um, somebody with gender dysphoria um, and you are also a parent and a compassionate communicator. So you've, you've done this work um, with bullying and did I hear you correctly when you said um, you think a lot of the stuff being done in school, the anti-bullying efforts are doing more to divide us than unite us? Absolutely, because as soon as we call somebody a name, we put them as other. We make them as separate from ourselves. And if instead we saw that everyone is part of like this human family and that every behavior is an attempt to meet a need, we would be so much safer because we'd go, huh, why is, why is he, you know, I mean, at one point when I was a child, I actually got um, stopped on my way up to a tree, actually on my way down from a massive tree house. And it was a big tree, high tree house. And um, a girl stopped me and told me that I wasn't going anywhere and basically forced me to turn around and go back up to the top of the treehouse. And I just tried to make the best of it. Even at that point, you know, I started asking her questions about herself and she started talking and pretty soon she was telling me about all of her classes in high school and how science was her favorite class and she didn't really have any friends and she was really lonely. And all of a sudden she said, oh my gosh, you know what? You're probably supposed to be somewhere or something. I'm sorry. I kind of made you come up here, didn't I? And I was like, yeah, you did. But you know, I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to talk and I'm sorry you don't have a lot of friends. But right from a very early age, I was aware that, you know, people do things like that to meet their needs. And if we can meet them in some way, if our community can support them, which includes teachers noticing which students are struggling and finding ways to give them skills so that they can connect rather than just demanding that they connect, that they can actually give them the skills to know that, you know, you can't just talk about one thing all the time. You have to listen. Teach them some active listening skills for one thing. <laughs> so all of a sudden the, the dynamics can really change. So specifically though, with the LGBT community, um, I know that the suicide rate is much higher for teens who are LGBTQ. I think it's 13 times more likely. That's what Transpulse says. So since you have experience with that, what would you suggest not only um, for those LGBT teens themselves, but for people around them, if they're wanting to, um, to fight that statistic to make sure that they are not being bullied, what should we be doing? Well, I think that changing our language around it can be really helpful first off. And instead of saying bullied, maybe we could say something like experiencing violence. Um, and then shifting and saying, yeah, one in six transgender youth are forced to leave school because of harassment and discrimination. That's very real. It's a major problem. But teachers can start by setting the tone, just as we set the tone as, as parents, 
and set a tone of inclusivity by not talking about boys and girls and instead talking about students. So something as simple as that makes it safe to be something other than a clear boy and girl. You don't hear that as a trans student and think, I don't fit, I don't belong. You know, and so your worries come up right away and you're afraid to interact with people. And then that fear is often seen as, you know, something else and it becomes awkward. And it also makes it so that people who are typically in the binary don't think that you're something different and therefore something bad. So really embracing diversity and talking about how important and talking about the, the important achievements of LGBT people and including those people and that kind of teaching in your day-to-day -day things, like it's like every day, and that's the expectation. Because trans issues and, and LGBT issues in general are not issues around sexuality. We need to start talking about this from the time the kids are like in kindergarten. They're really family issues. They're community issues. That This happens to mothers, daughters, fathers, sons, brothers, you know. I mean, this is something that we need to just normalize and make it, you know, something that keeps us connected. And we need to recognize that gender fluidity is in the natural diversity. I mean, 0.6% of our population is trans, and there's evidence across 22 different scientific disciplines that there's a biological basis. So, you know, when we go in armed with that knowledge, it's not a big deal. And even, you know, in the school where I work, where there's a lot of, um, there were a lot of really conservative right-wing Christians, I found that when I'm comfortable with it, you know, so this is, this is my, my tip for the LGBT community too. When I'm comfortable with it and just seeking to meet people where they are in their process of learning, then, and I focus on other things, not just on that issue, but on all the other things that connect us, then it is a much more positive, forward-moving relationship from the get-go. So focusing on connection rather than the things that don't is really important. And, you know, and the other thing about gender binaries and stepping away from those is we're all limited by gender roles. I mean, even boys and girls, as an educator, I'm not even sure anymore what the value of marking the male or female box is. It really doesn't tell me a lot about a person. And the more that we separate and make assumptions, the more that we contribute to violence. So I suspect that a lot of our violence is really about subtle cues because if you really talk to some of the kids who are doing the violence, you'll find that you know they're, they're sweet kids at heart too. They've just come from situations that were painful themselves. So you know, again, getting those kids support and or a whole bunch of subtle cues. You know, a lot of times they're supported by a group of people who've just gotten these subtle cues that that's, that that's not okay and it's okay in fact to push them out to the outskirts, to marginalize them. And we need to be clear as communities that, you know, not only is like not a war on it, not like, oh, that's not okay, but oh no, in fact, everyone is included. Everyone is okay. And it's perfectly normal. And it happens across species and it's happened across millennia. So we need to just recognize that and move on with our connection where we can. So how do you feel your story would have been different then if all of this had happened a decade earlier because you mentioned I mean certainly people know more about gender dysphoria they know more about the fluidity today um, than they did when this journey started for you but you said um, even you were able to find um, some groups on on Yahoo groups or you know you were able to find some support and reach out and find some people who were going through the same thing how do you feel your story would have changed um, had it happened maybe maybe a decade or so earlier well for one thing 
there was a little bit of support when I was when I was going through this, but not a lot actually. There was only one other major book that I found that was written by a partner of somebody who was trans who actually stayed with that partner and um, made it work. And so I found the Yahoo group, and that was wonderful. There's becoming more and more resources out there for spouses. My book is. Um, the first, as far as I know, where people have tried to make it work and stay together on one, under one roof um, and just open the box on what it means to be family. And I think that one of the other things that's important to notice is that we all go through a major challenge in our relationship at some point. Ours happened to be about gender identity. But when that relationship challenge happens, whether it's a child with disabilities or an identity issue or an affair, it's how we meet that challenge that makes the difference. And so, um, you know, thinking of it happening a decade before, I bet you the suicide rates were much higher than for transgender people. Because even, you know, Seda had grown up, she didn't transition until her 40s because she grew up in Wyoming and there was no precedent for that at all. And so she didn't understand what was going on. She thought she was just a bad person for a long time. So it, it took that long for her to come out. I think of all the people who just didn't come out and were miserable and unhappy and likely ended their lives. So I'm grateful that there are more and more resources, more and more people becoming aware, but it's, there are still pockets of people who really just have no understanding of it. And we just need to, we need to connect with those people because people do what their neighbors do. And this is a very important concept. So that when I go and I do a reading, somewhere and somebody comes to me and they say, you know, my granddaughter is, um, is trans and she's trying to live as a boy now. Um, and, and it's really hard to, to deal with the pronoun change. And I'm understanding about that totally. Um, I know from experience that that can be hard. Um, and at the same time, I keep prompting them to talk about their, you know, I, I say, well, you know, what is he like? What, what does he enjoy? And they're, huh, what is this? You know, I mean, they expected me to talk about them as their granddaughter because that's how they brought it up. But I just kind of go on. Oh, yeah, what is he like? Okay, tell me more about him. And they realize that it's okay and it's expected to talk about him as a boy because that's what he is intending and wanting to live his life as. And it, um, it changes. They'll, they'll, and then, then one of the other partners will come back and say, what is she talking about? And then, the, then they're kind of torn between his two realities. So we need to create a reality in which it's safe and comfortable and okay to talk about this stuff. And then the more and more people whose lives are touching someone who is trans, the more it will just be accepted and easy. And that's part of the importance of sharing stories. And I felt it was important to get my story out there as one of those stories so that when we read it, you know, when people read it, they'll be like, oh, that's one more instance of it being okay. And thank you for sharing your story with us. Is there anything else you wanted to add today? Oh, yeah. Um, actually, the title of the book is Housewife, Home Remaking in a Transgender Marriage. Ah. And, um, and it's an interesting thing, the whole concept of housewife and what it looks like on the outside to be a housewife, but the very interesting lives that housewives lead without people realizing it and the interesting gender dynamics that they're exploring on their own and gender roles and stereotypes. I really kind of wanted to, you know, own that word again after, you know, having a college education and choosing domesticity for many reasons. I wanted to kind of, yeah, take another look at that. So Housewife Home Remaking in a Transgender Marriage. And you can get the book at my website at um, www.kristinkcollier.com, K-R-I-S-T-I-N, kcollier.com. 
um, or on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. You can order it from any major bookstore. All right. Thank you for talking with us and thank you for sharing your story, Kristen. Thank you.